If you have God's word in a moment, we're going to Psalm chapter 115. Psalm 115. And by the way, I have to, I, I just need to pause. Teenagers, our youth or student ministries, give them a hand. Wow. Woo. Hallelujah. You guys knocked it out of the park. And that one song, I mean, I was looking around the congregation and I mean, everybody was bouncing. Even some of you that are a little bit more passive and quiet, you know, you guys were bouncing. It was a little bit, but I could see you were just barely moving. Anyhow, that song got me moving too as well. So I was excited about that. I need to hear that song again. That was awesome. But anyhow, we're going to Psalm 115 and uh, we're, there's three verses, but I, I found myself as I was really preparing for this morning, I found myself just really looking at verse one. And so we'll get to that. Um, called to glorify. I think one of the most powerful visions that we have in Scripture that gives us about a person that's that's wanting to glorify God, it has to be, you know, the grand story of David and Goliath. And you remember the story of David and Goliath and how that all, you know, kind of starts out to launch. You have David and Goliath. And, of course, the David, the Scripture is described as being young and handsome, you know, young and ruddy. And, And so there's David. He's approaching. He's got his little tunic on. And he's just a young man, a boy, and he's approaching, really, the the battle line uh, of of this great Israelite army. And, of course, the Israelite army is on one side of the valley, the Valley of Elah, and the Philistines are on the other side of the valley. And as you read the story, this thing unfolds before you. I mean, it's so visual, and it's so grand in its scale, and it's so powerful in regards to David's heart and what he wants to do for God. And you can imagine right now, as, as you read the story, you hear the story, how, how David walks up and he's hearing the, the, the giant across the valley defy the Israelites, the Israelite army, and defy the living God of Israel. And, and David's response is he's kind of nudging his way between the soldiers, and you can imagine that he's probably going up to about their chest. And he's probably about my height, actually. But anyways, he's nudging himself in between the soldiers. And, and, and he's hearing this, this, this appalling statement that this giant is defying the living God, the creator of heaven and earth. And, and David is appalled. And he says as much. And you can imagine the ridicule that he received from his own brothers and some of the soldiers. And, and, and so the message finally gets to Saul. And so he goes on and he tries on some armor. You remember that? He tries on the armor. It just does not fit. And then he goes down to the stream nearby there on the edge of the valley. He goes to the stream and he chooses five smooth stones. He chooses, you know, that what he is accustomed to, that that tool that he's used to using, which is a sling. And so he chooses the five smooth stones and he puts the stones in a satchel. And, and then he comes back to the battle line and, and God's timing. And there is the giant once again that is defying the Israelites and their living God. And then there's little David in his tunic and his pouch. And he begins to pull out a stone. And as he's moving down the, the hill there, you can imagine I've been in the Valley of Elah. I've actually visited it. It, and there, there are shrubs and there are bushes and some old logs. And I can imagine David now kind of dodging and leaping and jumping over things. And I imagine he's getting faster and moving faster as he's moving down the hill. And then here's the giant on the other side of the valley. He's looking at this. What is this? I'm a dog that you throw sticks at? What is this that you send at me? This boy? He's just a boy? And even as he is speaking, here is David that is thinking about his God and he's moving down the hill, moving perhaps a little faster and a little faster. And he pulls out a stone and not two stones and not three stones, but in one stone and one faith. He takes that stone and puts it in the sling and slings it around over his head. And, of course, you know the rest of the story. 
What happens is that stone finds its home there in the middle of the forehead of that giant. And of course, what happens in the story as you read it again, grand and visual, you know, reality, he ends the life of that giant. And I think about this story and this dramatic, you know, spectacular climax of how climax of how David defeats the giant. I'm thinking of David, who is so in love with his God that he was willing to risk his life to defend his God. He was willing to risk his life to glorify his creator, his maker, the father of heaven and earth. And when I look at the story, it was not only about David. This story was also as much about about Goliath as it was about David. In fact, I I was reading an article, and the article uh, was talking about how scientists have proven that giant people have bad vision. It's interesting. And I'm not saying that. I'm not a doctor. I don't know this. But the article was talking about for several physiological, very probable reasons that that giants, whatever was going on physiologically with their glands and such, that they 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 have poor vision. And whether that was the case here or not, we do not know. And bad vision would help us maybe understand this story a little bit more, but that's not really the point. What we can make a point of is that David's view was different than Goliath's. I mean, think about that for a moment. David's view of the situation was different than Goliath's. You see, David, his view was a view of faith in God. God uh, Goliath had faith in himself. David could see the size of the challenge that was before him. Goliath underestimated the challenge. David could see that death was a possibility. And for Goliath, death was not even on the radar. David wanted to glorify God. Goliath, his glory was in himself. To glorify God for David was certainly a selfless act. And we need to consider that. I mean, why Glorify God. I mean, that's the the idea. That's the theme that we're looking at this morning. I mean, it's a legitimate question, I think, that we can ask, don't you think? I mean, why do we need to glorify God? So I want to go to Psalm chapter 115 and and let's just look at verse one there. We have the passage for you. The scripture put that up on the screen there. Look at Psalm 115, beginning at verse one. As we consider the question, I mean, think about This idea of why glorify God. Here's verse one. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. So the psalmist is saying it's not me. It's not about me. You see, we're not focusing on us. I mean, that's a good place to start if we're talking about glorifying God. But to your name, give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. So God is a God of love, that he is, is, is a loving God, that he created us in love and desires to have relationship with us in love, in that love. And, and that he is faithfulness and that he is a God that is loyal every step of the way. We, we, we recognize that as we read this very first verse in Psalm 115. Now, I do not think there is a topic that has more space on the Internet than the topic of how to glorify God. In fact, I, I hit that. I put that in there. And I was blown away by how much material there is on the Internet in regards to glorifying God. I mean, there are tens of thousands of outlines and books and documents. And I mean, every preacher under the sun, any guy that's producing anything, any gal that's producing anything, there's all kinds of material. It's overwhelming how much material there is about glorifying God. And I'm looking at that. I go, man, wow, what would I have to say? It just kind of blew me away. 
Well, I, I want to share just a couple outlines that I came across. Not This is not my sermon outline, but, but just some ideas that were there on the Internet. And, and they, by the way, all of them are good. Every one of them, I'm thinking, oh, this is not wrong. In fact, just some ideas that we can look at. The first outline is this. How do we glorify God? This guy titled it like this. How do we glorify God? He mentions that we glorify God through worship. That's a good idea. That glorifying God is more than just a Sunday thing. It's, it's more than what we do here. We need to do what we do in corporate worship, accomplishing things that otherwise would not be accomplished, right? But yet glorifying God, it's beyond the Sunday morning experience. It's, it's a daily thing in life that we, we do in glorifying God. So through worship, we glorify God by loving others. You see it right there, by loving others. So we're loving each other. Uh, we're, we're learning how to do that because that's part of who God is. I mean, that's part of his attributes is that he is a God of love. And we can reflect the love of God by loving others and loving each other. And I think part of the goal as a pastor is that as we gather as a, a church corporately is that we we are open to the idea of loving each other, that we learn how to, to love each other, to get along. And so there's this community that we have together. Uh, third idea this guy has is become more like Christ. Become more like Christ. And, and, of course, this is being transformed in our mind and body and soul. And that there's a lot of depth to that. We need to study that. The next one, look at the next one there, number four, serving others. You know, so our talents and gifts that we have, it, it's, there's purpose there. That God has given those talents and gifts that we, we, we might find purpose in life. Amen. And then the last one there is telling others about Jesus. It's interesting. This is a part of how we glorify God. That we are willing to share Jesus with other people and say, you know, do you know my Savior Jesus? Or maybe to invite them to come to Mission Church of the Nazarene. That's part of not only the life of the church when the church is healthy. It's the beginning of the healthy life cycle of a church that believers are inviting other people to come and meet Jesus. To become a part of the fellowship of, of, of God's family. Amen. So uh, glorifying God happens when we tell others about Jesus Christ. Go to the next outline. Here's another outline that came up. Again, not wrong. Here's how this person put it. How do we live? How do we live to glorify God? And so the first step is that we confess our sin. We confess our sin. And and I know we kind of withdraw sometimes, you know, with that or to that when we hear it, but but that's part of, you know, the spiritual Journey. It's part of the healthy process of, of walking with God and be united with our fathers that we confess our sin and, and he knows we're at already. Amen. And confessing sin. If your pastor is never asking you and challenging you to confess your sin, then, you know, be careful because we need to be challenged in that regards to confess sin. The second thing, how do we live to glorify God? Bear fruit. And, of course, that unfolds in many different ways that we see, you know, spiritual fruit. You understand that. Number three, give praise to God. Now, I don't know why it is that we've kind of come into this place or the space where we're a little bit afraid to say amen or praise the Lord, you know, to praise God. And maybe it's because we're interpreting it as being insincere or maybe maybe not authentic or something like that. But, you know, if you say praise the Lord and you are sincere about saying it, is that wrong? So, yet, we glorify God by giving praise to God, and we can give praise to God in many different ways, amen? So it's okay to praise the Lord, amen? We, we give glory to God by being content, that Paul, he talks about that, learning to be content in all things. 
Uh, pray according to God's will. Number five, pray according to God's will. Man, you want to be blessed. Learn how to pray according to God's will, because there's a difference between praying your laundry list, praying your wish list, you know, putting the quarter in the slot and saying, God, here's what I want. There's a difference between doing that and learning to pray according to God's will as you read the word and you talk with God in your prayer life. And God is revealing you his will and you pray according to his will. Folks, you are going to be shocked if you've never done it before. How many times God will answer your prayer? He will answer prayer, I guarantee you, when you pray according to his will. Amen. Number six, uh, proclaim God's word. We're doing that right now. We're proclaiming the word and we're lifting up the word in deed and in worship and in Bible study and all that. Uh, Seven, it's interesting. He ends this outline the same place the other one ends, and that's leading others to Christ. And so as Mission Church of the Nazarene, we glorify God by inviting people. Yes, doing that glorifies God. I mean, so think about that for a moment as people, you know, come across your path and you meet people that you invite them to come and be a part of God's fellowship. You're glorifying God in that manner. Again, all the ideas, I mean, this huge bucket that's available to us, you know, it's, they're not wrong. It's just so much, so vast. The fact is, when we talk about, you know, glorifying God, we've heard this phrase. Most of us have heard this phrase our entire life. I mean, I've heard it since I was a little kid. But, you know, there are some of us that have, have maybe just recently began to think about the idea of what it means to glorify God. Uh, Farouz, one of our members here, she, she recently came to Mission Church of the Nazarene, and I spoke to her in the foyer just before church. And, and I've just enjoyed getting to know you, Farouz. She's sitting back there. And, and she, she was completely brand new to the idea of the Christian faith. And, and so this is kind of this new concept and idea for her of, of this idea of glorifying God. But yet for so many of us, we've been, been carrying it around. We've heard the phrase. We've heard about it for, for many, many years. Now, the skeptic may ask, I mean, in this culture in which we live right now, I mean, think about it. Because we're just thinking this morning. The skeptic may ask, if we were created to glorify God, is God merely using us? Maybe even the Christian would say, when I'm told I have to glorify God, that does not make me feel love. I mean, if I'm told that I have to glorify God, and you know, you're, you're receiving that, because maybe the teacher is kind of dictating that to you. And, and I'm being told that I have to glorify God. That doesn't make me feel feel love. And, and I, I think in part this is due to the world's distorted view of love, seeing it as something that some someone does for us. The love that it's love that, OK, it's supposed to benefit me. It's supposed to make me feel better. You know, most of you know, I, I need to receive something. But you see, Jesus does not. He does not define the love like that. He does not show us love like that. Jesus helps us understand what love really should look like in showing us how to serve others. He shows us what he means there in Matthew chapter 5, looking at at verse 16. He says, let your light so shine before others so that you may see, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. So Jesus helps us understand what does that look like and what does it mean if we're bringing glory to the Father. We show the love that the Son has shown us in the life that he's lived and serving others. Now, I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking out loud and considering the universe. I mean, the physical universe 
And how vast and how great that universe is and all the galaxies. I mean, thinking about that, you see, the person could ask the question, how could God care about us when the earth is so small and humans seemingly so insignificant in comparison to the vastness of space? I mean, how could he care for us? I love one author's response to that question. He wrote it like this. He says, the universe is about the greatness of God, not the significance of man. It's about the greatness of God, not not our significance. And so here we have the theme this morning. The theme is to glorify him, to glorify God. That is the divine purpose that he's given us because we are called to glorify. Amen. One author, he writes about it this way. He says, what is the chief end of man? Think of that question for a moment. That's an awesome question. What is the chief end of man? Answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If we could just get that fixed in our minds and live each day in line with it, God would use us to accomplish his purpose and we would greatly be blessed. It is a statement that should govern my thought life and all my behavior. Does this glorify God? In simple terms, to glorify God is to make him look good as he truly is. It is to display as much as we are able his perfect attributes his moral excellence, and his infinite greatness and worth. And so now these are my words. Yes, all of life is to be lived to glorify him forever. Amen. This is not making God beautiful. I mean, to glorify is different than beauty. I mean, God God is already what he is, and God is already glorified, and God is already beautiful. And the fact is, human hands do not make God anything more than what he already is. I mean, because God is glorified. Do you agree with that this morning? Say amen. I remember as a kid, we, you know, if we're to bring glory to God and bringing glory to God is that we're shining the light on who God already is. I remember as a kid, the, the magnifying glass, you know, how you learned, you know, to use a magnifying glass and you look at a small item. Now, I'm not talking about those kids that would burn bugs with a magnifying glass. OK, I'm talking about the kid that, you know, interested, the scientific mind. And you look through the magnifying glass and you see that small item and you now see details that you would never have seen with your naked eye. And it just comes alive and you're not changing the item that you're looking at. It's always been that way. It's just magnified like in the telescope when you, or the microscope. Excuse me. When you look through a microscope, you're looking at something that the naked eye cannot see. And you're looking at all its unimaginable detail and it just comes alive. And, and you're just really seeing something as it always, always been, as it always already was like on the other end the spectrum, the Hubble telescope In the Hubble telescope, you look out into space and you see in that vast space, there is something that is just spectacular and you see it in its unimaginable detail. And yet, you know, looking at it has not changed it. It is what it already is. You see, that's what happens when we bring glory to God. It is to reveal who he already is to the world around us as we are shining the light on that glory. Amen. This is to reveal God in his unimaginable greatness, his unimaginable love, his unimaginable mercy, his unimaginable goodness, shining the light on God, that God might be glorified to the point that it takes our breath away. Amen. That is what God is calling us to, to bring glory to God and be, be in this moment that it brings chills and sends chills down our spine because God is worthy to be glorified. I'll never forget the living Christmas tree in our church back in Florida. We had a huge stage. 
it was 90 feet from, from side to side, and we had this, this program called The Living Christmas Tree. And it was a musical with choir and drama and all of that. And, and we had, there in the last couple of years, we had two Christmas trees. We used to have one. Well, we bought a second one. And we had two Christmas trees, and these trees are made out of scaffolding. Now, kind of get this in your mind's eye. It's made out of this great scaffolding, and there are rows, okay? They're half round, and then the choir would stand in these rows. They're like 34 feet high. I mean, really high trees, and we had two of them, and we could stand about 50 people in each Christmas tree. And there in front of the Christmas tree, there was this, this pole system up in you know, the ceiling there uh, that, that held a curtain. It was called a kabuki system. I'm not even sure what that word means, but it was called a kabuki system. And this kabuki system held this curtain, this silver shimmering curtain, in front of the living Christmas trees. So when people come in the back and they would look at the stage, they'd just see this shimmering silver curtain. And then the program would begin and the actors and the singers would come out and they're singing and dancing and doing all kinds of stuff. And there was snow and there were Christmas songs. And one year we had Santa kind of slide in on a sleigh. And so the front part's kind of secular. And then it turns spiritual. And so the programs run in about 30 minutes, maybe 40 minutes. And, and then there is the song that is kind of the peak. It's kind of the climax of the moment. And, 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 and the people are singing and it's going through the system and the music's getting louder and faster. And in the center now there's a spotlight and the spotlight is on a violinist. And the violinist is playing confidently. And then the violinist is playing a little bit louder and a little bit louder. And then the violinist is playing a little bit faster. And the notes are getting a little bit higher and a little bit higher. And the whole thing just climaxes. And then there is this sudden boom that happens. Boom. It reverberates. Boom. Say that with me. Boom. And at that moment when the boom happens, the kabuki system, they push a button and those curtains, those silvery, shimmery curtains in front of the trees, they just perfectly fall. Just all of a sudden, perfectly fall to the ground. And then all the lights and all the greenery on the trees and all the voices and all the people, the lights turn on, the lights turn on. At this moment, all these lights come on, the voices are singing, and, and man, it is, a, it is a wow moment. And people leave and they tell us how they had chills running down their spine. How they, they were just, it was, it was a wow moment. In fact, it was such a wow moment of God's glory that at the end of every program, people wanted to give their heart to Jesus Christ. And you know, that's just a program and that's nothing. But bringing glory to God, bringing glory to God, that is something. And we should bring glory to God in such a way that people are saying, wow, I want to know about this God that is in your life. I I like what John Piper writes. He writes about God's glory like this. He said, God created us for this, to live our lives in a way that makes him look more like the greatness and the beauty and the infinite worth that he really is. This morning, I really only have two points. It doesn't sound like it, does it? I really have only two points. In fact, it's the same point. I'm going to repeat the point. And here's the point. God, hang in there. God is worthy to be glorified. God is worthy to be glorified because of his kindness and his truth. I think of Ephesians 1, 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing that is in Christ Jesus. 
So we have a God that is worthy to be glorified because God loves us so much. He wants to bless us like his own son. He wants to give us everlasting, eternal life. God loves us that much. Amen. And that God is a God of truth. Meaning that what God says is true. God does what he says he will do. And so God is worthy to be glorified because he's a God of kindness and truth. God is worthy to be glorified because of his what? Because of his sovereignty. God is a sovereign God. And we see this again and again in the word of God as people recognize the sovereignty of the one who created heaven and earth. In fact, we look at Daniel chapter 4 and Nebuchadnezzar realizing, wow, this must be God. And he calls people to bow and worship the living God, the creator of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we recognize that this morning. So God is worthy to be glorified because of his sovereignty. And here's the second time I'm going to say it. God is worthy to be glorified. God is worthy to be glorified in our vocation. You say, well, pastor, what are you saying there? God is worthy to be glorified in our vocation, in our work, in, in, in the place that we, we do our business Because you see, if we are lying and we are cheating and we are stealing, we are not glorifying God. If we are living a life and we say that we're Christian and we're living in such a way that it tarnishes the reputation of God, then we're not bringing glory to God. God is worthy to be glorified in our vocation. God is worthy to be glorified in our ministry. Amen. And that means in in every part of our being, we follow the great The great commandment that we are to love God while we're in ministry, doing ministry with all of our heart and all of our soul and mind and our strength. And and that we are doing this ministry because we love God and we love others. That's true. But it also means if we're to glorify God in ministry, it also means that we do not take his glory. We do not take credit for what God is doing. And and that's key. I mean, if you think about that for a little bit, that you do not take credit for what God is doing because, you see, God is producing the fruit. God is doing the work. Amen. God is bringing it all together. And we pause to give God glory because of what God is doing in ministry. So God is worthy to be glorified in our vocation. He's worthy to be glorified in our ministry. He is worthy to be glorified in our families. Dads, can you just imagine, husbands, listen, can you imagine what marriage would be like if you glorified God in your marriage? You imagine if you said, okay, I want to glorify you, God, how you would speak to your wife, how you would respond and how you would, you know, function as a husband. If you're saying, I want to glorify God in my marriage or husbands, how about as a father? How would you treat your children if you said, I want to be a a husband or I want to be a husband? a father and a mother in a way that glorifies God. It's going to affect the way that you you treat your children, the way that you respond to them, because you want to glorify God. Amen. So God is worthy to be glorified in our family. God is worthy to be glorified in our philosophy of life. And this permeates every every thought, every behavior, every outlook of of who we are. And I think in our culture today, where we are so polarized, I think that we are crossing lines where we're allowing, you know, philosophies that are maybe not Christian philosophies to influence us and misdirect us in regards to what we think is right or wrong. You see, as a believer, as a Christian, the question is not what we feel is right or wrong, it's what God's word teaches us is right or wrong. As we look at the word of God and we listen to God's voice, he will guide us into all truth. Remember, because he's a God of truth. 
And what he says is true. And we recognize that truth as we, you know, allow God to to shape our philosophy of life. You say, well, pastor, what are you getting at? I'm a little hesitant because this is kind of meddling. Here I go. This causes us to ask some personal questions. Like, how do I glorify God in my body? How do I glorify God in my body? How do I glorify God in my business practices? The place that you work, the people you're working with as they are watching you and you're representing the God of heaven and earth or maybe you're an employer and you have several employees. The question is, how are you glorifying God in your business practices? How do I glorify God in your secret place? I mean, men, when the door's closed and nobody's looking, how do you glorify God in that private time that you have? In that secret place, are you glorifying God in how you're living your life and what you're doing? How do I glorify God? Again, I told you, I'm meddling. How do you glorify God or how do I glorify God with my money? I mean, this idea that God has called us to tithe, that's 10% of our income. And what the scripture teaches us, we're not to let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. That means we give the tithe, that 10%, without controlling where it's going. Because if we control it, then it becomes an offering. That's not tithing. Tithing is giving 10% without control of it. We're trusting God as we give that 10%. And so we need to ask the question, if we're struggling with that, I mean, struggling with the idea of tithing, we need to ask the question, how do I glorify God with my money? Now, in, in summarizing all this, again, this is a lot, and I want you to hang in there because we're just starting this series, and I believe that God wants to shake things up. He wants to do some things in our church, so do not miss what's going to come in the next few weeks as we talk about being called to glorify. But to sum this up this morning, to live to glorify God means that we want to experience the joy of the Lord in our lives. When you glorify God, joy will come into your life. Now listen, uh, joy is different than happiness. That's a whole different, you know, basket. That's a whole different ball game when we talk about joy versus happiness. Joy does not change reality. We know reality bites sometimes and life's going to be tough, but in the midst of that difficult reality, there is a joy that is so fulfilling in life that only comes to us through Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus desired that his joy would remain in us. We see that in the word, that his joy would remain in us no matter the circumstances, no matter what's going on. We can have this deep running joy like the deep waters of a river. We can have this joy that makes us complete when we learn how to glorify God. If you do not have this joy that I'm talking about, if you're not experiencing joy, my challenge is get on your knees and ask God, say, Lord, how can I glorify you? Lord, how can I lift your name and how can I glorify you? Because when you learn to glorify God, he will give you joy and that joy will make you complete. I, I love Psalm 51. Here, here it is. This is the last thing. Psalm 51. Restore your joy in me, O Lord. Restore your joy in me, O Lord. We learn to glorify God and lift God and, and he will bring joy into your life. That joy will be made complete. And I don't know what the Lord is saying to you or speaking to you about and how he's stirring your heart, but it's possible that there's some some little things here that God has been speaking to you about and he's wanting you to experience joy. He wants you to know how to glorify him. And so I invite you just to respond to him right now and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to do this. 
I don't know what he's saying, what he's speaking about to you, but Lord, I'm going to do this. Lord, I want to glorify you. You know, I'm thinking about this, this day of Pentecost. And guys, go ahead and come on in, and we're going we're to sing and close this worship with singing time. But um, I'm thinking about Pentecost and, you know, the beginning of the church and the spirit that falls there upon the people, 3,000 added to their number. I cannot think of, you know, a better way to glorify God than to allow His presence to come into our life, to come into our church. We're talking about creating a space for God in our life, in our ministry. can't think of a better way to just kick this off. Think about Pentecost and to say, God, I'm going to give you some space in my heart.